HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Levo. Simple, potent, at-home herbal infusions at the push of a button. Learn more at levooil.com and feed your enthusiasm. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L dot com. This week on Meet and 3, we're spotlighting the people, dishes, and ingredients decolonizing food. We're looking at our Thanksgiving plates and beyond to explore efforts to reclaim food sovereignty in Native American culture, the African diaspora, and Puerto Rico. I believe that oyster dressing is like the consummate side dish for an amazing fried turkey. What we're doing there is just working the land and we're laughing and we're creating a space for joy. And it's in that that healing occurs for us. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Jane Lopes and Sarah Fernandez. We'll talk to Jane and Sarah about inequity and harassment in wine. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Sarah Fernandez got into wine and hospitality only a few years ago. She has worked at Shoji, Nietzsche, and Special Club in New York City. A graduate of Cornell University, she also spent many years in research at Jacoby, Mount Sinai, and NYU hospitals. She currently works in wine retail at Depenor in Brooklyn. Jane Lopes returns to the Grape Nation and also the United States after a long stint at Attica in Melbourne, Australia. She is the author of Vignette, Stories of Life and Wine in 100 Bottles. She received her Master Sommelier certification in 2018, only to have it revoked by the Court of Master Sommeliers. Jane is now the co-founder of Legend Wines, importers of curated Australian wines with her husband, Jonathan Ross. Before we get started, I just want to say something. I recently reached out to Jane Lopes to come on The Grape Nation to talk about the recent story by Julia Moskin in The New York Times on sexual harassment and wine in the court of Master Sommeliers. Jane graciously accepted and then suggested inviting Sarah Fernandez on the show. Sarah was the focus of another Julia Moskin story last year about sexual assault and a popular high-profile sommelier in New York City. Jane thought Sarah was an important voice and was part of the early stages of these sensational expose stories. As most people know, I'm an older white male, and I have hesitations hosting a show of this matter, but I felt it was important to use my platform and give voice to the people affected. I asked Jane and Sarah not to help with the process of putting the show together, but to be the process. I asked them to present me with the show outline and the talking points. So 
Welcome to the Great Nation, Jane and Sarah. Thank you for doing this show. We are taping this show on November 23rd, um, remotely via Zencaster. Um, thank you guys for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having us. All right, so let's get this started. Julia Moskin from the New York Times has written two articles along with a bunch of follow-ups in the past year exposing the problems with sexual assault and harassment in the wine industry, including the quartermaster sommeliers. Um, Sarah and Jane, both of you were the subjects and involved um, in those articles. So I would like you to walk us through the process of speaking out. You know, why do you speak out? I want to talk about the problems inherent in our industry and I want to talk about with you guys, or I want you to talk about what the movement towards a better culture looks like. Um, so really the first you know, question or topic I have for you is, I think it's very brave and heroic to speak out. The question is, what does it take to speak out? You know, why do you speak out? And then, you know, what prevents you from not speaking out sooner? There's a lot there, but you could take it wherever you want. Um, Sarah, you can start because, you know, you were involved a year ago in that first article and it has since continued. Yeah, well, I just want to say thank you so much for having me on. And Jane, thank you for involving me in this conversation and, um, you know, connecting our stories and, and really being a force to connect the larger aspect of sexual harassment in this industry beyond just CMS or the natural wine world. This is a issue that affects all women of all industries, but particularly in the restaurant and wine world. Um, I mean, part of the process of speaking out is uh, because there is a really, there's an entrenched um, culture of sexual harassment in the restaurant world. About 37% of all sexual harassment claims come from involved restaurant, restaurant workers of all industries. And um, these issues have been documented in research publications and in many other instances for years now, dating back to the 90s, I was doing some research last night and nothing really has changed. Nothing really changed after my article um, came out and speaking out is important because it brings light to a really serious issue of power in this industry. But Sarah, you had, you had a, I guess it was a personal struggle because you were involved, you know, in a very specific incident. And didn't you have to wrestle with yourself whether to come out, when to come out, you know, consequences? Yeah, um, it was uh, essentially when I experienced a, an issue with Anthony um, over the summer after I had been uh sexually assaulted by another um, person I had worked for. And um, that's, this is, this, the article is a testament to the amazing power of women and coming together and because, and the amazing power of social media, because through social media, I saw somebody post about very vaguely about, you know, there's this person uh, having sexual harassment, uh, who was just nominated to a high position and it was, you know, there had been plenty of sexual harassment claims and through this network and talking to other women, I found out that this person, my experience had not um, been unique. And oftentimes that's the um, issue with a lot of these assaulters. Uh, the, if you're assaulted by uh, somebody, it's often, you're not the only one. And that's why speaking out and connecting and communicating about these topics is incredibly powerful because assaulters use shame to keep uh, their victims silent and keep their positions of power. And so it was, um, it's a very visceral 
an exhausting process going through and recounting your trauma over and over and over again. Um, and it, I spent many months uh, existing with the worry that speaking out was going to come back to haunt me because of the history of sexual assault in this industry. And so it was a very uh, difficult decision, but I'm one that I'm very um, glad that I made. Yeah. Um, Jane, you were literally front and center in the recent time story. I mean, it was a cover story. You look at the picture and there you are. Um, I mean, you, as I mentioned earlier, you were involved in the Master Psalm scandal. And then, you know, you elaborated on a lot of things in the recent Moskin story. You know, same question. I mean, what does it take to speak out? You know, why? Why now? Yeah. So I guess there are a few kind of parts to that. And I think, um, you know, I think it's important to talk about why, why we sort of have to go down this road in the first place of, of kind of speaking out in an article, speaking out publicly. And it's because the, the law really hasn't caught up with, um, caught up with the, with the levels of inappropriate behavior in, in our industry and many others. I mean, the first sexual harassment case in this country was they had to, they tried it as a discrimination case. And that's still what sexual harassment law falls under because they didn't know how else to classify it, how else to, uh, to categorize these actions as illegal. Um, and there's still so many laws that are working against us. I mean, take the court of master sommeliers. This is, it's not, you know, it's not our employer. So it's very hard to hold them responsible under the law. The statute of limitations in most states is woefully small for these cases. It's like one year. Um, and so there's just a lot of the, there's not much other recourse. And a lot of these women have come forward to to the board at the CMS, to positions of authority in the industry, to the HR um, in their companies, and nothing's been done. So there really isn't a lot of times another option. Um, and in my case personally, you know, I, I had really... Um, I had really normalized what had happened to me and totally accepted it and thought I was lucky that nothing worse had happened. And so when kind of the discussion around around this article first started happening, um, and I don't think they'd mind me saying their names because they've been vocal about their, their roles in this, but, but Liz Dowdy Mitchell and Victoria James were kind of leading um, the... The, the charge on, on, on getting this together and talking to women. Um, and uh, they reached out to me and, you know, said, would I want to be involved? And, you know, my first reaction was, yeah, of course I want to be involved. I'm happy to kind of reach out to women and be, uh, you know, a, a sounding board. And But but I'm not going to go on record about my story because it's insignificant. And I stayed friends with the guy. And, you know, I just thought I had a really... Um, I guess a quote unquote kind of weak story is that is what I felt of it. But, you know, the there more, is no weak story. Yeah. And that's what you know, that's what I learned through the process and talking to kind of all these women. And, you know, by by the end, I felt like I needed to go on record, like I needed to, um, you know, very visibly support the cause and not just kind of <laughs> be there to help behind the scenes. I needed to you know, in for a penny and for a pound, like I needed to, to really, um, kind of support what I, the change I, I believe needed to, to happen in this industry. Do you think, I mean, when things like this happen and you've been talking to people, are people aware of the laws and because they're so weak, it discourages them or they're not aware. And when they choose to, you know, go in the legal direction, they realize how weak or antiquated the laws are. I mean, what's your feeling on that? Um, I, I guess I think that people don't really know. I think right. it's um, there are definitely organizations and resources out there that are providing that information, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to be super kind of loud about it when it is such, it is overall a pretty discouraging, a discouraging field 
Is that your right. is that your feeling as well, Sarah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just the process of um, going to, going through legal channels to kind of like, first of all, what legal channels within the restaurant industry? There are no like independent boards that review this, whereas HR, even if you have <coughs> HR, HR is often oriented towards protecting the employer, not the employee. Um, and we should def- and we'll definitely get into talking about brave spaces and the things that need to change in this industry in order for to remove sexual harassment from um, the prevailing culture. But you know, it's the process of recounting this very shameful experience is um, exhausting. It's emotionally exhausting. It's mentally exhausting, and the legal channels often require you to repeat that over and over and over again you know first when you file a police report then when you go to the lawyers and then also often the onus is put on the victim to defend their case and to bring evidence against their uh, assaulter and so oftentimes you look at the whole process and you just think wow the system is set up for me to fail and for me to never get justice um, in terms of sexual harassment because just like jane was saying everything uh, sexual harassment and sexual assault is under the legal guise, especially for um, in profession in the professional setting, is very wonky and unexplored and un and undocumented. Uh, and you know, there's not a lot of legal precedent sent because it's just extremely emotionally exhausting. So I was going to ask you what you know. I think I did ask. And I think you answered part of it, but you know, what prevents people from speaking out sooner and what prevents them from speaking out at all? I think part of that answer fairly is a screwed up, you know, legal or corporate system. I mean, can you expand on that a little and what other reasons? Um, Jane, you- yeah, go ahead, yeah, yeah, I, I think, you know, I, I think if you take, let's say the, the CMS and sort of, sort of my, my story, women had kind of come forward to master sommeliers and even, you know, even the board itself. And they were, they were shut down. They were ignored. They were told they were being dramatic. And so those kind of whispers get around. And so everyone thinks there's nothing they can do about it, you know? Um, And, and so, and, and, you know, there's just, as we've said, there's no, there's no real legal protection for um, coming, you know, for any sort of, of, of lawsuit um, or charges brought against these sort of things. Um, it's just still very much a gray area in the law, um, yeah. which it really shouldn't be. Uh, and so, you know, there just really isn't much of a recourse. So if you're thinking, you know, about speaking out, there's just so much downside and women are afraid of retribution, which has certainly happened right. in our industry for, for women who've been, vocal about these men in power. Um, So I think, you know, I think it does take, it does take community. And, um, you know, it took, I think it was, you know, for, for my particular article, it was knowing that there were several other women who were putting their names on record. You know, I don't think anyone, any of us would have done it alone. Um, And I have so much so much respect and admiration for Sarah and Raquel, who, you know, they were the only two to put their names on record. And that's, you know, two is better than one, but it's still a very, a very vulnerable position. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I framed my, it was easier for me to frame my experience as uh, standing up with Raquel through this process. You know, I think to go back to um, Jane's point, I mean, this, these speaking of processes only happen through community. And um, I talked to a lot of women, you know, there were a lot of women I spoke to on the phone who had uh, had encounters with Anthony, who, and that's part of the emotionally exhausting processes. You're recount, you're hearing other people's experiences, and um, unfortunately, they didn't want to come forward because of the severe retribution. I mean, this was just you know a, a young kid getting his start. Imagine a master sommelier who is like you've looked up to your entire life, and so um, it is uh, the culture has to totally change and it has to be more you have to we have to start naming these things in order for people to feel comfortable to start processing their own trauma of what they've been through 
And I also think, you know, you guys have been an inspiration to make it easier. Not, I don't want to use the word easier, but to make it more realistic to come forward, you know, more quickly and more clearly. I mean, you know, nobody should stand for, you know, any of this BS. Um, you, you know, the Moskin articles and others, you know, were successful because of your bravery, creating awareness and attention, you know, to these problems. And it's not just one problem there, you know, sexual harassment is, you know, the major, but there were other things too. Um, I'm curious, and we broached it a little, how do these articles come to be? You know, there's, there's that whole curiosity I have that, you know, you pick the paper up and there's Jane sitting there, standing there, and Sarah, you sitting there, and it's like this explosive article. And it just didn't happen the day before. I mean, I want you guys to you know, talk to me about, you know, the, the process for you guys, you know, how you were involved and how it came to be. And, you know, Julia's bravery, I mean, your sense of what she had to do. Um, you want to start, Sarah? Um, sure, yeah. You were, you were the first article, <laughs> major article. Well, I, and, you know, here's the thing is I wasn't the first. Raquel had written a letter to Alice Faring a year before the art, we even started talking to each other, a year before Anthony was nominated as, you know, best new psalm in America by Wine and Spirits or whatever. Um, she had written an art, a letter to Alice Faring because Alice Faring was Anthony's, like, self-proclaimed mentor, telling her what had yeah. transpired. And she shut her down. And that's also why we speak up, because sometimes the people who perpetuate the silence is not just the men. It's, you know, it's the women. And I don't think it's fair to gender uh, exactly like that. But um, that's why we have to call everybody in to this issue. Um, but like I said before, there's real power in community. I mean, communicating and talking and and pushing through those feelings of shame and being and finding uh, networks of safety and social support are incredibly powerful and um, important to create a conducive professional environment moving forward and I started talking to people I I uh, saw um, I, you know, I saw a post on Instagram and then I started talking to uh, Marissa Ross and she really was the proponent of pulling these stories together. And, you know, she would be like, hey, would you be willing to talk to this person? Or would you be willing to get on the phone with this person? And each time, you know, we did, we, you know, we cried, we, we gave love um, and we processed what had happened to us. And I think through this and through that article, I started to process other um, experiences of, of sexual abuse and trauma that I had experienced. And it really kind of opened up a lot of my own personal healing and transformation. And that's what I hope for everybody else moving forward when they meet these. But um, other women, you know, they were really scared to come forward. And, eventually, and Julia was just an angel. She was so gentle and so guiding and so validating in all of the experiences because it's she had to do a little bit of therapy with us absolutely right. yeah. <laughs> yeah definitely maybe more than a little bit of therapy um and uh we met and uh Raquel her and I got breakfast and we talked through the process of what it was going to look like and I think that her strength and Raquel's strength uh is really what um kept me to, and also the strength of the women who I worked with at Niche Niche, you know, I talked to them and be like, oh, now they want me to put my name on it. Now they want me to put my face on a photograph. Yeah. Um, I, these, it just kept, uh, it was a slow progression. I think Julia did that on purposely and cautiously <laughs> for it. Um, but these strong women told, they were like, look, if you're going to do it, go all the way because we will have your back. And, um, 
they gave me the strength and my strong support network. And I mean, my amazing, strong and beautiful mother who is so loud. <laughs> and uh, I think that through this process, you, you learn, you gather strength, you process your own trauma and you step into um, what being an advocate can really bring towards your own healing. Yeah. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, it seems like there's no other way to do it. You know, <laughs> you, you should come out, you should speak out, you know, the effect that it has positively on the industry, but you just, you know, eloquently said, you know, how it's a process. So it organically grows, you know, this is happening in the industry. You start talking to people, more people, and then it really becomes something. And then a Julia Moskin gets involved. What about you, Jane? I mean, your story literally, like I said, ran a few weeks ago. How did, how did that come about? Because in your case, there were more participants, you know, in the story versus. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, as I mentioned, kind of, so, you know, Victoria, Liz and I got together and just, you know, you've heard a lot of things over the years and, and, uh, we just, we reached out to women and, you know, we tried to just be kind of a, yeah, a, a supportive ear for people to talk to. And it was really, you know, it was a lot of people were like, oh, I, wow, I thought I was the only one. You know, I think as much as sometimes you people think, oh, everyone knows this is going on. A lot of people think that, you know, they carry that shame of, of oh, I've, I'm the only one who's experienced this and I did something to deserve it or I could have handled it better. And I think we've all had those thoughts. Um, and so it was, you know, it was really liberating for all of us to see that this wasn't, this wasn't us. It wasn't our fault. It, we weren't alone. And, um, so, you know, we kind of did some initial story collecting and then turned some, you know, the names of people who were willing to, to talk to Julia and we kind of handed that over to Julia and it's probably about six weeks of sort of intensive work on Julia's behalf, maybe eight weeks. Um, and you know, it was a lot for her. It's, it's, I mean, she spent probably five hours talking to me alone and I ended up being wow. a sentence in the article, you know? Um, so it, it really, like, I can't even imagine the, the time she put in, <laughs> in those, in those six weeks. Um, it's a huge investment. Um, and it's a huge emotional investment. You know, she really, yeah, she really, you know, as Sarah said, was sort of a therapist and made me realize some things about my experience that I hadn't really, you know, hadn't really registered before um, in terms of, you know, I just always thought like, well, I wasn't traumatized by my experience, so it's okay. And she's like, no, <laughs> you right. don't have to be traumatized by it for it to be inappropriate behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, the, you know, it should just, you know, she's been doing this for a while and she just had so many amazing insights and, you know, it's a lot of back and forth. And then, you know, the kind of the scariest part was probably the last week or two. And she, you know, it's the New York times. It's, you know, the, the journalism standards are very, very high. The pinnacle. Um, so mm -hmm. all of the, you know, all of the stories have been vetted, have been investigated, have been corroborated and she has to give the the accused a, a chance to respond. And so, and they have to know the names of their accusers. So that was kind of a, that was a, a, a scary part too in the last few weeks of knowing that, um, that these men had, had had our names and had been reached out to. But, you know, at that point we'd formed a, a kind of a, a WhatsApp chat of, of the women who were going on record and we really an incredible group of women and everyone just was there to support each other and have each other's backs. If, if, you know, they were hearing from the men or just were having doubts. And I think that without that, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I know of a number of these articles that have gotten to that point and then, and then the, the women going on record have pulled out. So I think, right. Um, I think having that group and having each other's backs and knowing that you're not just going on record for yourself, but for everyone else who's going on record, everyone who's not going on record, who's experienced these, these sorts of behaviors and everyone who could experience them in the future. 
Um, so it was, you know, it was not, I, I had no idea what I was sort of signing up for when, uh, when I, when I started talking about this in the beginning. Um, and it's ended up honestly being more, I more illuminating and meaningful than I expected. Did either of you get contacted by any of the accused men or even, you know, people outside of the specific accused? Well, I think that is a telltale sign of kind of like what Anthony, how Anthony handled it and like really moving into what needs to the the steps moving forward of really seeing some sort of transformative justice come about. Anthony just basically pieced off the face of the earth um, and didn't respond to anybody, never even responded to Julia when she reached out to him for the article. Yeah. And um, not even, you know, like when I did the interview with Miguel, the six month retrospective, he hadn't even heard from Anthony and they were very, very close professionally. Um, And Anthony just stopped talking. So sorry to jump in, but. Yeah, no, we're talking to uh, Jane Lopes and Sarah Fernandez. Um, Jane, um, in, in your article with Julia, there were a lot more people accused and involved um was there any reaction to any of the other women or you from those guys like you know what are you doing or any intimidation or they laid low um i think i mean obviously there yeah there were were more people so i think they each handled it differently i haven't personally had any any of them reach out to me i know you know some of them have completely disappeared i know one of them who's still a couple of them who are still active on social media. I know a couple of them who are still attending CMS, you know, town halls and stuff like that. Like there are a few who just, uh, seem to, uh, to (laughs) not feel any shame, but none of them have, have come forward and made a statement, which, you know, I, I I don't know if it's surprising or not, but you would think that maybe there would be some amount of impulse and in, in taking some responsibility and and apologizing, but that doesn't seem to be an impulse that that any of uh, any of these these men have. It's a, it's you know, amazing. I agree with you. Um, one last thing on the article, um, I, and you guys pointed this out to me, and I think it has a lot to do with you know, how the story comes out. And that's, Jane, you mentioned, you know, it's the New York Times. Um, But, you know, the solid journalistic practices of someone like a Julia Moskin, you know, I guess being a woman, being, you know, a great writer. um, But in your mind, didn't that have a lot to do with, you know, how the story develops and how well it develops? Jane? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, I think, you know, as much as I'm a proponent of of women speaking out, I think I think it's important to do it in the right sort of context um, and and trusting your your story to the right person. And the fact that Julia had done these sorts of articles before, the fact that The New York Times, you know, has such kind of um, very strict journalism procedures you know they're you know they're protecting themselves as much as as much as anyone else and that ends up benefiting everyone with how they they go about the process but um yeah i mean i think who julia is and 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 who the new york times are is made a huge difference in in me wanting to go on record um and i don't know if there's like too many other, too many other, you know, news sources that I would really want to trust like that. And Sarah, during the, when your story came out and it was a very emotional thing to come out during the process with Julia, you felt comfortable, you know, everything she was doing and developing it, you felt was done right and going in the direction it should go. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is, uh, the invaluable 
um,ness of having somebody who's able to create space for very sensitive topics like this and trusting a reputable news source going through the vetting process, it, it takes a long time. I mean, we started talking at the end of August and the article came out November 1st. So that wow. entire time, you know, Raquel and I are just, yeah, we're just texting each other like, all right, <laughs> you have you okay today? And um, texting Julia, I mean, texting her, emailing her and uh, really having a guiding force to, uh, to know that you don't have to be the strongest person in the room anymore is uh, is incredibly, and that somebody is going to be able to translate all of the noise and ex- trauma that you've experienced into a cohesive story and put evidence out there in the public eye for everybody to see of of what happened. Because you know, like uh, sometimes we need somebody else to help us understand and make sense of what occurred and to, to, and to put language that we might not have to our experiences. And, um, great that's point. Where, yeah. That, that's a great point. And that's obviously why Julia, you know, was effective in getting this message out. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to take a quick break. Um, I am talking to Jane Lopes and Sarah Fernandez. When we come back, I want to talk about some of the problems inherent in our industry. And I want to get into, um, you know, what the movement towards a better culture looks like. You're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Levo, the world's most intelligent at-home infuser. It's super easy to use to make infusions for cooking, candies, cosmetics, and herbal medicines. When the box showed up, I was excited to try it out as I've heard good things about the machine. It looks like a space-age coffee maker on the counter, and having it out makes me want to infuse everything. I've got plans for the hot peppers on my counter and the sage I picked from the garden before the first freeze last week, along with some other choice herbs and spices. I think everyone on my list is going to get infused oils this year. So far, I've used it for cannabis, basil, and orange peel infused oils and butter. The machine even has dry and activate functions for the highest potency and stability in your infusions, and you can connect through Wi-Fi to track your progress and record your recipes and share with the Levo community. Learn more at levooil.com. That's L-E-V-O-O-I-L.com. This episode is supported by Nourish and Flourish. Nourish and Flourish features behind-the-scenes stories about artisans, producers, farmers, growers, and other makers in America, along with delicious and wholesome recipes. The latest issue of Nourish and Flourish is a special artisanal gift guide showcasing some of America's finest products, including everything from the farm and garden to eco-friendly home goods, kitchen and cooking essentials, bath and body, original art, blown glass, seasonal recipes, and so much more. Shop online to support local and buy local. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more at nourishandflourish.site. Okay, we're back. We're back with my guests, Jane Lopes and Sarah Fernandez. Um... Janie, you were getting into the court a little, and I want to spend a few minutes on that because that's a big deal, and it was a big part of, you know, the article that you were in. Um, You know, Julia's recent article from early November specifically targeted the quartermaster sommeliers, um, and you talked a little about that nobody has come forward no apologies i mean that's sort of been the mo of what's been going on back to your master psalm scandal um so let's talk about you know the future of the court i mean jane you may be a little more intimately involved but sarah you you are right in there um does and and we didn't even get into the deep stuff um, and I think people can read the article and, and, and find out more. But does does an organization like the CMS, Quartermaster Sommeliers, 
deserve to survive? Does it deserve to survive <laughs> in its current, you know, incarnation, incarna- whatever's proper? Jane, you, you go first on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 kind of the the question of the hour in the yeah. CMS circles. Um, uh, you know what I uh, I think they've obviously made a lot of missteps in in um, in handling you know this crisis uh, in handling the the cheating scandal in terms of you know racial equity and um, that kind of came to the forefront earlier this year. I think, you know, it's the organization has, I think most people can can, can admit has mishandled and misstepped along, along the way. Um, I think there are some really great people in the organization right now who want to make changes, but I also feel like there's a lot of people in the organization who basically want to make the minimum amount of changes to survive and ensure that their own power and status is kept intact. How do you feel about that? that? That's not okay. You know, that's, I think this organization needs to change. It's been a, it's been a members only club, you know, it's been a club that exists to serve the interest of its members. Um, and that needs to change. It needs to, its whole mission statement, it's who's a member, that would all re- really radically need to change to serve the industry. Um, and that is right now not the primary goal. Um, and so I would say well, that's the... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. But just no, to clarify, to, wait, to clarify the point, there's, <laughs> you know, in the U.S., less than 160 master sommeliers and 10, 12,000 members. And that's the organization. Yeah. The members don't feel like they're part of the organization um, and have the input. The, you know, the board and the psalms seem to have all the sway and that that's backwards. Do you agree with that? I do. But it literally, I mean, that's it's. If you, that's kind of been the, the, I guess the myth that they've perpetrated is that everyone is a member, but that's fundamentally not true. The membership is only master sommeliers. And so, and that's been, you know, so as much as they uh, like to talk about how they, they serve the, you know, the everyone who's testing and the industry at large, that really is not who is a part of the organization at the end of the day, it is just master sommeliers. So I really think that, that the whole, um, you know, the whole structure would need to radically change. And then I think you have to kind of consider whether even a structure like that is, is the most beneficial for the industry, that kind of hierarchy. And I think the fact that it's so secretive and there's such a lack of transparency in order to ma- maintain this sort of rarefied status has been one of the, the major problems, you know? Right. There should be, be 2,000 master sommeliers in the U.S. Um, right. And then it becomes less of a kind of a, a secret members-only club, and it becomes less sort of rarefied and and it takes yeah it for sure takes some of the power away from from those 160 people but that's what that that power is what has allowed them to prey on and profit from the industry um and so i i just don't know if enough if if people are willing to give up their power i just don't I don't know if they are. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. so well, that's, also to point you know, out out of 155 U.S. master sommeliers, 131 of them are male. So they have a fairly significant handle on that. And to your point, they probably don't want to give up what they have. Yeah. And I just don't think, I don't think they will ever, I don't think it could ever be a positive force in the industry uh, until they do. So Sarah, hearing that and, you know, knowing everything that's been going on, 
what's your perspective? I mean, where do you, you know, Jane is way intimately more involved. I mean, she was one of the 23 involved in the cheating scandal. I wouldn't say you're an outsider, but you look at it differently. You know, what do you, what do you make and what do you do with that organization? Yeah, I mean, when you go over those numbers that you when you look at the representation, how, how is that representative of the people who actually work in the industry as a whole? I mean, yeah. if like ninety percent of the people in power are white men, and we know that ninety percent of the people who work in this restaurant industry are not white men. In fact, it's the opposite. Right. <laughs> if yeah. the majority of the people who work in this industry are are BIPOC, they're queer, they're, they're minorities, they're undocumented. They're actually the most vulnerable of, uh, the pop of our population. They're the people, you know, the restaurant industry attracts those who may not typically fall into, um, be able to get pathways towards work in other more traditional settings or have been excluded from other traditional industries. Um, and so I think that, when I hear that as somebody who is a little nascent to this industry and who spent some time focusing on social justice issues, working in public health and examining racial biases in our healthcare system, racial and gender biases in our healthcare system, it is, uh, it's disheartening to know that, you know, um, that, these factors are still at play in this incredibly vulnerable industry. What we need is we need we need proper representation. The people who are master sommeliers should be representative of the sommelier community in general or the wine community in general. I mean, you know, I think that Jane and I talked about it. In order for this industry to survive, you know, so we have some people talking about uh getting more, getting younger wine drinkers uh, involved or interested, you know, like some other people are talking about combating the white claw syndrome and um, <laughs> how do we, yeah, how do we get, how do we introduce a new generation to a um, beverage that has been kind of siphoned and, and, uh, and put behind a So everything wall. you're, everything you're telling me, Jane and Sarah, um, I mean, there needs to be attention to a younger and more diverse, you know, membership and audience. Um, to me, it sounds like, you know, they're not good at reacting to issues, um, involving diversity, racial inequality, the George Floyd thing. We all saw, saw how that played out. I mean, I'm going to ask you this question. It, it seems like, doesn't it seem like this thing pretty much has to be blown up beyond a few changes. Sarah, uh, Jane, you, go ahead, Sarah. I'm not Sarah. in it, so I'll let Jane give, but she knows my opinion. But, but my question is, how, Jane, how is it going to be done unless substantial changes are made? Yeah, I mean, I, I ultimately don't think, um, I don't think that the organization can or should survive. I, I, I think even if those seriously substantial changes were made, which I think is a real long shot, right. I, you still have a structure that has acted as a unsafe space for so many people, um, for, you know, for women, for black people, people of color, indigenous people. This has been a really unsafe space and and, you know, unless you got rid of the word master, unless you got rid of the pins, unless you really just like totally broke it down, I, I just don't think it could ever be a safe space for for those communities. Um, and, you know, and also like. Are those are these people the best equipped to to make those changes and to lead this industry? And I think they've really proven time and time again that they're, that they're not, you know? Um, right. So I just don't know how, you know, how this group of people that's, that's allowed all these things to happen for, for years can, 
we can expect that that they're going to be the ones to kind of lead the industry out of this is just, um, I think it's kind of a, a misplaced sentiment. Could it shrivel away to become an irrelevant organization? Is that I mean, part like, of... We, uh, don't, we, we don't also need them. By, by framing them as defining, you know, standard and gold standard, we are giving them power. You know, and in reality... Yeah, right. We don't need them. There are there are there are there is transformative justice going on right now with other systems coming into place and and making things right without these power structures that have perpetuated the system of abuse. I mean, so so Sarah, I want to Jane. Did you want to say something? Please. No, no, I was just, yeah, I was, uh, I was agreeing. <laughs> so w- this is a good segue for me because um, I want to talk about, you know, transformative justice. You know, I think it's pretty clear, you know, that institutions, you know, like CMS may not deserve to lead or even survive, you know, which we got into a little um, until they have done the work to educate or transform themselves. And the CMS seems to be, you know, bad at that. Um, Sarah, this is something that I know you're very passionate about. Um, and I want you to talk to me um, about transformative justice. Um, you know, not so much anymore about the CMS, but in hospitality, and I guess it applies anywhere, you know, corporate world, small businesses, big businesses. Yeah. So I mean, talk to me a little about. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a, that's the beauty of the intersectionality of wine is that, you know, it's, it's a vessel through which we can start to start to broach many different subjects. I mean, just from uh, transformharm.org, um, this is a definition I took from Mia Mingus, transformative justice is a political framework and approach for responding to violence, harm, and abuse. At its most basic, it, se- it seeks to respond to violence without creating more violence and or engaging in harm reduction to lessen the violence. Transformative justice can be thought of a way to make things right getting in the right direction or creating justice together. So really I see it as like a grassroots project because at the end of the day, oftentimes it falls on those most vulnerable to be the bravest and speak out and really start perpetuating this change that needs to happen. You know, it does not rely Transformers justice response and interventions don't rely on the state or the presumed power structures, example, CMS. So if we keep framing CMS as the gold standard, then then that's what we're going to respond to, you know, that right. then that's how we're going to be reflected upon. It doesn't re- reinforce or perpetuate violence such as oppressive norms or uh And most importantly, it actively cultivates the things we know that prevent violence, such as healing, accountability, resilience, and safety for those involved. So has the CMS done any of those things? I mean, Jane? No. (laughs) Absolutely not. But Jane, also, Jane, you brought up earlier, you know, how the legal system is somewhat void at handling all of this. I mean, this is a step in a direction with a lot more specifics um, you know, and an yeah, opportunity and I, for people. Yeah. And I do think there are lawyers out there who are doing really good work, but they're having to be so creative because the, <laughs> the, the legal system itself, the laws itself have not caught up with the change that needs to happen. So, you know, it's kind of couching things under different laws or, you know, time's up is an example of a, of a campaign that kind of is, is, is supported by a lot of lawyers taking on different cases that they can't pursue kind of through the framework of the law. So right. they're, they're, you know, so they're putting things in, you know, the, the, the public arena. Um, so yeah, I, I, I just think there's um, by even, you know, and Sarah and I talked about this, like by even kind of, I don't, you know, I don't, it's not my goal to take down the CMS because even that kind of that goal really centers them, <laughs> um, right. you know, where I would rather put my energy into into um, to positive arenas. And this is how I felt after 2018, too, where it's why I, 
didn't retest. It's also why I didn't sue them. You know, it was just like, I didn't, I just wanted to walk away from them. Um, I didn't want my energy caught up with them anymore. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to write my book and start my company and, and, you know, I'm been in lots of conversations about what are some positive institutions that we can implement in this, in this industry um, to, you know, to, to create safe spaces. Um, and, you know, I think that that's, that's where I want my energy to be. Yeah. Um, I agree. And, and Sarah, we talked about this a little, um, there are some organizations, you know, disruptors that have taken very specific steps. I had Zev Rovine on the show less than yes. a month ago, and he's creating, you know, you have to start somewhere, a code of conduct for his employees and then maybe extend it to his suppliers, winemakers, and even the restaurants he deals with. And then you made me aware of, you know, wine fair with a very extensive pledge. So yeah. if things like that get out and people understand and buy in, I mean, that's another step. Talk about that a little. Yeah. I mean, we, one part of why I spoke up and, 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 and put my name uh, and face on, on this subject is because I wanted to call to action other, other victims of uh this system who have suffered abuses and traumas and because it's a grassroots issue we need to band together and people need to know that they can come out and they can talk and that there are and that if we get together and we communicate and we build this energy and like Jane said put our energy into positive um, organizations like one of which the uh, price of admission, which was a workshop that was dismantling sexual and racial discrimination in um, uh, in the natural wine world. It was a huge workshop. That's where I met Zev, and we started, and that's where I was introduced to the code of conduct that was put together by the Vingard and uh, Pamela Bush, who is uh, chairs that, um, and I was first introduced to these concepts of like really. Uh, enforcing consent culture in our workplace. And um, I think that, you know, there are uh, people out there who are trying to disrupt our education because knowledge is power, right? We know that. We know <laughs> undergraduate degrees are very expensive for a reason. And um, <laughs> in order to disrupt these systems of power, we have to disseminate information and get it out there to people who are interested in, you know, uh, Yurka Jay is um, started industry sessions with uh, Jim Slay, and it's this not uh, it's a it's for BIPOC and LGBTQ plus community who want to learn about wine. And every couple of weeks, they ha have a different wine expert come and donate their time and give a lesson in a session. And they have um, wine stores donate wine so that we can taste. You know, during this uh, when we're all stuck at in COVID, um, COVID distancing. I mean, there are people like Raquel and Zacharias who are opening Auxilio and Amigex, which is a nonprofit community space. It's not a restaurant, but they will feed you. You know, it's an area for people, BIPOC, LGBTQ, again, to come together and, um, take and, and have space in the kitchen if you want to work on a project or if you need to do, um, uh, catering or just like a, 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 a safe space and you can all do you can create this in your own community and I think that we're here also for a call to action to help people get um, involved in this code of conduct uh, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I wanted to and and we'll mention some of these organizations. I mean, I'll post them and, you know, we'll mention them at the end of the show. Um, we're starting to wind down time-wise, but I wanted to cover, you know, two areas that become more personal to you. You know, one is self-care. I mean, after all this happens, Janie, after, you know, the testing scandal and after the article, Sarah, after, you know, your article, um, you know, how do you take on self-care? Sarah, you, I mean, Jane, you described a little about, you know, just being positive. Um, that's one thing I want you to talk about. 
And I guess what becomes very important is, you know, the culture of consent, consent culture, which has, you know, been an issue and a problem. Um, you know, Janie, you talked a little about, you know, self-care. I mean, your healing process was not making a big deal. Not, that's not the way, I didn't mean to say it that way. Not pursuing the uh, cheating scandal, um, embedding yourself in a book. I mean, are those the things you do? What other things? Yeah, I mean, I um, I have gotten better at self-care over the years. It used to be like just uh, kind of go, go, go and sort of uh, distract myself from, from whatever was going on. But I think... Um, you know, I think it's everything from, yeah, I, I like to focus my, my energy on positive things. I think that's hugely impactful for me. Um, and you know, I, I have lots of respect if people kind of have a, you know, a crusade if they want to, you know, take down the CMS or whatever it is, if that's what like they want to spend their energy on and that is what kind of drives them all good. I just, um, for me, it's, yeah, it's spending my energy on positive things. It's, you know, trying to get enough sleep and drink water and exercise. <laughs> the basic stuff. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and honestly, the things that we don't focus on in our industry and it's, right. you know, that, I, yeah. that are not a luxury to even take. Yeah. You know, and honestly, I think working. something, and I think the CMS sort of culture of, you know, you're working full time and then you're studying, you know, 20, 30 hours a week, um, is really, is really not beneficial for, for people's well-being. Um, and like, I mean, I felt the worst I have ever felt in my life. The, the, the three days I was taking tasting and service exams in 2018, like I just was miserable. I wasn't sleeping. Um, and it's it's very well documented in the book, Jane. I mean, how physical (laughs) and how mental, and that's a plug for the book, which, you know, fits in (laughs) here because, You know, now you're in a better place, but Jesus, you know, you're just scratching, you know, the surface with all of that. And Sarah, (laughs) yeah, I mean, Sarah, in getting to know you, you know, I find positivity, you know, a big part of you. And I think you're in a healing process right now. True. Absolutely. I'm very vocal that I am not okay you know and i think that's okay to say i'm not okay you know after yeah. the article came yeah after the article came out i dove back in it was such a stressful process that once it came out i felt relieved and it was such a i dove into work and i used that to distract myself and i used other things to distract myself from the trauma that i needed to process and now i'm processing it but i think one of the things that i've learned is if you heal yourself and you heal your individual then you can start to heal your community. You can start to create space for others and heal in that way. And that is, I really want everybody to take it. I think that's what 2020 has taught us. It's taken away the things that we want and it's given us the things that we need. And um, sometimes that's healing yourself before you can start to heal those around you. And yeah, just, uh, we Sarah, I, I think that's a perfect place to end the show, but finish your sentence. I was just say, take, just drink water, sleep, and um, there you go. take care of yourself. I think positivity, to end the show on positivity and both of you embracing it and, um, you know, moving in a direction of healing and getting on with it um, is a great thing to hear. Um, I thank you both for coming on. Let me just do a quick wrap up. What I want you guys to do, because we don't have time, is send me a few resources that I will post on social media that is, um, you know, pertinent to everything we talked to. We mentioned a few, but, you know, let me get out a list of, you know, different organizations. Um, if you have any comments about the show, questions or suggestions, please e- email me at Sam at the That's Sam at the nation.com please subscribe to the grape nation podcast on itunes stitcher spotify or wherever you get your pods follow us for more information and updates on what we discussed on facebook the grape nation at the grape nation on instagram we're at s ben ruby on twitter we're at at ben ruby but we always use the hashtag the grape nation on both um jane and sarah um 
I don't know. Does it make sense to tell people where they can follow you on social media? Just to keep up, Janie, on the wine business, Sarah, on your travels. Janie, where can we find you? Um, I'm at at Janie, J-A-N-E-Y, Maxine, M-A-X-I-N-E, on both Instagram and Twitter, but I hardly ever use Twitter. (laughs) So uh, Instagram and then that in my bio is my uh, business business handle as well. So, yeah, follow follow me on both of those. That's why I call you Janie, because it's on your... Uh, I know. And it's it's a, on your thing, and you put it out there, so I embraced it. I know. Uh, it's fine. It's, Sarah, uh, <laughs> where can we uh, follow you and what's going on? Yeah, um, you can. my Instagram handle is Sarah Marina Fernandez, S-A-R-A-H-M-A-R-I-N-A-F-E-R-N-A-N-D-Z, and follow me there. You can message me. I post a lot about mental health and um, resources. I'm just, you know, I want to throw it out there. I get another call to action for anybody who wants to, you know, use, if, who feels like they want to use positive momentum and move forward. We're, we're gaining your you're supported, you're heard, you're seen, and you're loved. Sounds great. All right. I want to thank my guests, Jane Lopes and Sarah Fernandez. I might say that I love both of you guys for coming on and do the, doing this. And everything everything that preceded this and we discussed has been very brave and has had a major impact on what's going on, you know, in our world. So thank you for that. Thank you to our engineer, Amanda, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.